the velocity that we are experiencing with respect to the rate of change, we've never experienced as a society before. It feels like we are at the dawn of a new era there, and we've taken some steps backwards in terms of public confidence because of these high profile failures. I think we're gonna to have to really have a very good look at um, the runway that an institution has in an environment where a tweet can um, really change the overall picture. For many years, we've been discussing from a governance point of view, what are the questions the board should be asking? But of course, unless you have enough expertise with these very innovative products and services and tools, it's very hard to ask the right questions. Welcome everyone to the third episode of our podcast series on demystifying risk. I'm Tim Roberts from the Risk Practice at Alex Partners, and I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth McCall, Supervisory Board Member of the European Central Bank, to talk about some topical issues on the frontiers of banking regulation and compliance. And there's been no shortage of events in recent months to trigger you know, a number of interesting topics. So it's a very timely moment to speak, Elizabeth, and I I'm also conscious you've made quite an important speech in the last few weeks in Florence, and I know some of the themes are going to be relevant to our conversation today. So I'm 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 really looking forward to um, where, you know where we can take this conversation. I'll I'll pause there and just hand over to let you introduce yourself and and say maybe a little bit about what it actually means to be on the supervisory board of, of the central bank. Sure, Tim. It's really really great to be with you this morning, and I'm looking forward to a very interesting discussion. I know you've always had your thumb on the pulse of risk in the market for many years, having having known you for quite some time. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning a little bit today as well. I am on the board of uh, the European Central Bank, and for me, that's really quite an honor. I'm the first American um, to serve in that capacity. Um, you know, I went to school in Freiburg when I was a university student for a study abroad program, thanks to a, a scholarship from the German government. And I studied at that time the, um, you know, the, the common market, and I learned about all the European institutions and the free movement of goods and services across Europe. But what I really learned about was the importance of Europe for peace. And even in these days, um, with the war at our border, um, the, the need for a very unified Europe is, is certainly something very important. So now being on the supervisory board is really something um, very meaningful, very important, make my small contribution in the financial services area um, toward, uh, toward Europe. Wonderful. Well, that's a great starting point, actually, with the geopolitical issues you're referring to there, actually. And if I may, that's the first topic I'd like to open up, because the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is clearly one of those major events that we, we, we're all as a society and as a banking industry and are uh, reacting to. Uh, others as well, though, of course, other tensions around the world, which are also affecting the banking industry. And I guess, although the European Central Bank isn't directly supervising money laundering, there are clearly some prudential issues that come from sanctions, anti-money laundering, uh, and other regulations around financial crimes. I'd welcome your thoughts, first of all, on uh, as a, thinking as a prudential regulator, what, what sort of concerns do changes in sanctions um, give rise to the ability of banks to be agile 
in responding to sanctions. Yeah, very good, very good point that you're making just um, about the overall regulatory framework. And I think that's an important place to start. Um, you know, the, the ECB is the prudential supervisor and the way the structure is, um, is set up in Europe, the national competent authorities are the overseers of anti-money laundering um, and the various national competent authorities also have the responsibility for sanctions compliance. But there's an intersection of the compliance risk here and what I would call the, the realm that we operate in for supervision, the prudential risk oversight that we have responsibility for. And uh, you know that's in the place where non-compliance uh, brings about reputational risk or brings about um, you know the, the level of sanctioning risk that can have an effect on capital um, or have an effect on the franchise itself. And throughout uh, you know recent years, we have seen um, institutions that have failed as a result of not complying with sanctions regimes. Um, so it's very clear that, especially in the context of, of the terrible war that's taking place um, that Russia is is involved with with Ukraine is um, you know been met by very significant sanctions regimes by a wide variety of jurisdictions. And I realize that um, it's it's very difficult to comply with all of those different regimes. Uh, but it is absolutely essential that institutions follow through on those compliance responsibilities. From the ECB's point of view, we would be looking very carefully at um, the governance components, at whether or not um, there is a, a failure of compliance with those risks that could lead to prudential risks. Now that's very helpful to understand. And I, as, as, as you describe that, the thought it also occurs to me that we've seen retaliation against the West in the form of cybercrime, for example. We've seen Russian hacking groups, for example, attacking Western targets, openly motivated by a response to sanctions. And it occurs to me, of course, it's not only the sanctions the West is applying on Russia, it's those responses and other consequences that may hit a bank. And, you know, Coca-Cola's had their website attacked, for example, in one of those retaliatory attacks. But we could just as well see attacks on banks, which would be of concern from a prudential basis as well as from a protection of customers. And we're definitely operating in a in a different environment in this day and age where cyber risk has to be something that's top of mind. I would say that, um, you know, so far uh, we have not seen wide scale attacks, cyber attacks on financial services institutions. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're keenly aware of that risk and very much encouraging institutions to follow through on um their responsibilities for operational resilience. It's it's a quite a critical area. In fact, this year, um, for the first time, we've decided that the next stress test that we perform will be a cyber stress test. And I think it's the first time that a supervisory authority is going to be uh, running a, a stress test in this area. So we won't be um, running sort of a friendly attack kind of a uh, of an approach to the stress test area. It, it really, what we will be looking at is a scenario or several scenarios that um, an institution could face with, uh, with a cyber attack. And we'll want to be looking at the responsiveness of the institution in respect of a, of a, you know, a credible type of a scenario that could occur. That feels like 
you know, that feels very timely, I have to say. Obviously, I've got a special interest in cybersecurity, as you as you know, and it feels very timely because um, banks are increasingly reliant on technology, not just to deliver banking services, but of course, to monitor their risks. They're increasingly making use of technology for their compliance and their risk management. And therefore, ironically, they become more vulnerable to a sophisticated cyber attack. So um, somewhat akin to an arms race, one has to keep escalating the governance and the monitoring processes that go with all of that technology. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we've also been very closely monitoring digital transformation plans in the institutions that we supervise. And, you know, it's a two sides of a coin, really. Um, on the one hand, we very much want to be encouraging institutions to have robust transformation plans that they're following through on and that they very clearly understand where they are headed with their transformation. It's fundamentally important that institutions are able to be agile, able to manage risk, able to realize cost efficiencies that come with digitalization that take some time, fair amount of investment, but take some time to then um, get to the other side and have that um, those cost efficiencies that are available. There are competitive pressures that the institutions are facing that also drive them toward the need to have digital transformation plans in place. So we've recently surveyed the institutions to just gain a better understanding of the state of play. Um, and I said there were two sides to the coin. The other side of the coin is also managing the risk. And, uh, you know, we're here having this chat, Tim, shortly after realizing that ChatGPT was able to onboard 100 million customers only two months after its launch. And so, you know, we, we have to imagine what that means for our institutions strategically. You know, the, the ways of working that artificial intelligence will bring, how does that affect their transformation plans? Are they, are they equipped at the top of the house from a governance point of view to be following through on um, measuring the risks? And so there's opportunity and there's also risk that has to be managed. I mean, that's a really interesting angle to digital transformation you're alluding to there, because, of course, there's been waves in the past of digital transformation, modernizing the old technology, putting in place better payment systems, better messaging systems, better databases, cloud transformation, etc. But now the advent of uh, AI tools, generative AI tools like ChatGPT, it suddenly changes the nature of the interaction. And indeed, the way the firm is being run, if you're using ChatGPT to write code, if you're using it to write marketing material, or to interact with customers and explain products to customers, all of a sudden it raises some I think much more fundamental questions about how do you know what's really going on in your bank? How does the board understand how they're monitoring and measuring risks, how they're interacting to customers? Some of these are obviously um, less prudential and more sort of customer treatment, customer protection issues, but really from top to bottom, it raises questions about how you manage an institution with AI embedded in it, doesn't it? It, it really does. Uh, you know, I like to say that we're living in a time of a renaissance when we talk about uh, technology, the, the velocity that we are experiencing with respect to the rate of change we've never experienced as a society before. And I can think back to um, when I was banking superintendent in New York some 30 years ago. And of course, even then, we were quite focused on innovation, making sure that as uh, supervisors, we were encouraging innovation, but also making sure that it was managed. And 
we were sure then with the advent of the internet that we were living in uh, an incredible time of change. I, I look at that and it's, um, you know, it's a world away from where we are now with uh, the introduction of generative AI. From a supervisory point of view, um, it's interesting. We, we took a very close look at uh, the governance of the institutions recently, and we found that at the uh, management body level, 14% of the institutions did not have anyone on their boards that um, was a, a, an IT expert. And I think, you know, we would say that, especially given the advent of things like uh, ChatGPT, that we really need to be encouraging our institutions to have at the table um, some understanding of, of technology, how it's changing, how it can be implemented, how it can be used for good, and also how risk can be uh, really managed. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a shocking statistic, 14% even nowadays. And I suppose for many years we've been discussing from a governance point of view, what are the questions the board should be asking? But of course, unless you have enough expertise with these very innovative products and services and tools, it's very hard to ask the right questions about what, you know, the adoption of new tools is doing to the bank, what new risks it might be introducing. I'm going to pivot, if I may, to another technology topic around digital assets and crypto assets, because, of course, this is another, in some ways, even more fundamental development for the financial services industry, where technology is changing the nature of the underlying commodity that's being traded. And Obviously, we're we're seeing new regulations emerging in Europe. Europe is in is 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 taking a very rapid path here, um, leaving behind some other jurisdictions, including my now sadly non-European home home jurisdiction of the UK. Could could you say a bit about the you know the general thrust towards overseeing the the use of crypto assets and some of the issues you think that raises for future regulators? Sure. Uh, it's a very uh, timely question that you are posing about crypto um, in the advent of crypto in the financial services marketplace. In Europe, uh, you are right. Um, I'm, I'm really very proud of the actions that are being taken in Brussels to move toward adopting a regulation or uh, oversight. I think it will be the first in the world. It's called MICA, the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, and it's setting up a very important framework for protection of retail holders for market integrity and crypto assets. And it's also intended to, to promote financial stability. So it's a very important piece of legislation that um, will come into force in the near term. It's interesting. The, the MICA was being drafted, of course, before the recent uh, very high profile failures, FTX, for example, Silvergate in the US, um, you know, and some of the focus on uh, the crypto exposures with some of the bank failures. And, you know, we, we've we've wondered, you know, does Mika cover an FTX type of a scenario? And in fact, there is plenty of good in, in Mika. For example, a requirement for independent audits that would have to be put in place, which is not uh, something that FTX was subject to. The need to segregate uh, assets from trading assets, from customer assets. So that type of segregation would be required by Mika. Um, so, you know, it's a, it, there's, there's a lot of good there that, um, you know, we, we will really benefit from as we look at the, the crypto marketplace. But I think there's more to do. And, and now we are on the other side of an FTX. And, you know, in, in supervision, um, when you think about regulatory frameworks, we have a long tradition 
in the banking area of a concept known as comprehensive consolidated oversight. Um, and this comprehensive consolidated oversight allows a home host structure. So host uh, jurisdictions can rely on a home supervisor for the overall uh, oversight of a parent organization. That's the regime that's in existence in banking supervision. In the securities world, there's something similar, um, which is known as equivalency regimes. So if, a, if a, um, a jurisdiction is deemed to be equivalent to one's own jurisdiction, then one may rely on that jurisdiction. But in the area of crypto, where we, you know, really, we don't have borders, we don't have jurisdictions, we have companies that are operating that claim very proudly they have no headquarters, physical headquarters that they claim is their primary home country, thus bringing about either an equivalency regime or or uh, or home host structure. So I think we need to be thinking very carefully globally how we achieve cooperation and rigorous oversight in this type of a context. It's going to be an essential piece. And um, I don't think globally we have our arms around that. No, I mean, it feels like there's going to be an international framework needed because for these entities that are essentially stateless or citizens of the world or however they would like to frame themselves, it's still, it should still be possible to have a lead regulator or, or you know some sort of sense of home or who's their, who's their sponsoring regulator that means other regulators can recognise them as having lead oversight. But it's going to take some work, I guess, before we get there. It feels like we are at the dawn of a new era there and we've taken some steps backwards in terms of public confidence because of these high profile failures i know it felt like a very sudden shift from crypto being the next big thing with you know high budget tv ads during the super bowl and so on celebrities yeah. endorsing crypto exchanges etc now all of a sudden it's not quite so hot but these things tend not to new innovations tend not to go away completely even if they have a bump so it, it feels like there's a lot more to come uh, in terms of international collaboration between regulators so that this creates, a, 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 as you say, some version of a, of a comprehensive regime that doesn't have obvious arbitrages um, for people who are free to move wherever they wish. Yes, and that puts you know, appropriate guardrails in place so that consumer protection is achieved and um, you know, individuals don't lose all of their investments, and we've seen that happen here. Um, Basel is doing a great deal of work in this area, so we'll, we'll really look forward to that. And I think we're going to have to right. continue, even where we have Mika coming into force, we're going to have to continue thinking about where are the places, where is the gap, if you will. Um, you know, it's a phrase I like to use, you know, from uh, the subway stations, mind the gap. It's very clear to me that there is a, there's, there's a significant gap here for an international regime, but there may also even be gaps existing in the frameworks that we're envisioning now at the local level. So, you know, are we actually capturing and licensing the activity in an appropriate way so that the guardrails are there? And, and I would think about this, um, again, we're not, we're not the overseer of consumer protection at the ECB. Um, our our um, oversight would really be prudential and about financial stability. Um, but these are the, you know, these are the very significant concerns that we would have. You know, we're living in these days just after SVB, you know, Silvergate and Signature Bank. And, uh, you know, these are 
a bit of a wake-up call in the current environment. Um, I can't say that these were caused by crypto. Um, there's some exposure in the in the context of Signature Bank. SVB was really not a, a crypto institution, crypto-exposed institution. It was exposed to the tech sector, so it was quite idiosyncratic with respect to its business model. But the, the really important thing that um, you know, we really have to study and take some lessons learned about is um, you know, the intersection of social media and um, liquidity. So in five hours, SVB lost $42 billion. What does that mean in today's uh, regulatory framework for leverage coverage ratios, for high-quality liquid assets, for measurements on capital? I think we're going to have to really have a very good look at um, the runway that an institution has in an environment where a tweet can um, really change the overall picture. Now, that's very interesting. At a time also when identifying, well, I suppose it's never been easy to identify the source of a rumor, but it's particularly hard now when we have troll farms, you know, seeking to, um, you know, disrupt the economy uh, uh, by putting about false news, fake information, rumors about institutions, etc., undermining trust. So it's a difficult time. It's, and I think there's probably a lot of quite strategic thinking to be done about how do you react to that speed of a contagion? As you mentioned, do you think there are direct lessons for the management of banks now that we've seen how quickly these can unfold? Does that change the way bank boards and executive teams now need to operate? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, And it it brings me back to something I said earlier, which is it's really important for the management bodies of institutions to have very competent, uh, rigorous individuals at the table that will be asking the right questions about the impact of social media, for example, on, on liquidity and what the connection points look like. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intersection of um, digital, the world of digital and the world of banking, where we need to have that understanding at the table. Yes. Now, this is an interesting fact. When you first, when you mentioned this topic of IT expertise on the board, I was immediately thinking about, you know, understanding the IT, the traditional IT underpinning the bank. But of course, it's also understanding the digital economy, understanding social media and the way it works, and what's traceable, what's not traceable. It, it, it's quite a challenge to get the skills necessary on a board. But of course, it's not you know it's not beyond capability because of course banks have got that expertise often internally in their management teams. But we haven't sort of there's a bit of a generational gap, and we haven't yeah. really seen it emerge onto boards as quickly as we're going to need it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. SVB, you know, there's a lot of focus on the the tech sector and, you know, signature with the exposures to the crypto. But when you look at this, um, you know, there's a lot of just very traditional risks that are at play here. And so if you look simply at the the growth that SVB went through from, uh, you know, year over year, um, 2019 to 2020, 63% 63% growth, 2020 to 2021, height of the pandemic, 83% growth. Um, this is something that would catch the eye of supervisors automatically. It's a, it's a um, high growth uh, situation. You would be you know, very much triangulating your portfolio and moving that to a, 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 risk, uh, to, to a risk review in understanding what that, what, a, what that business model is and what's um, at play with that growth model. 
And the other component is very traditional, you know, the, the mismatch, the duration mismatch in the asset liability management side, um, you know, they clearly had a, a broader um, picture there. And then, you know, very fundamental questions about governance, no risk officer for eight months in 2022, no chief risk officer. These are fundamentals that are not, you know, social media, crypto, tech, you know, these are, you know, really fundamentals that we we have to be aware of. Well, look, I think we are now out of time. This has been fascinating. We've covered quite a wide range of topics, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, fascinating to talk to um, somebody who, as you mentioned earlier, I've known for a number of years, but now you're in this privileged position. As I, I didn't, of course, I, I realise now it's obvious, the first American on the board of the European Central Bank, a fascinating vantage point to comment on these issues, which of course are global in nature. But thank you again for your time and thanks to our listeners for joining us. And I hope they'll join us for future iterations of this Demystifying Risk series of podcasts. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be with you and with everyone. Thank you so much.